Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. It's, this section contains one of Paul's most beautiful prayers. Well, Ephesians has two of my favorite prayers of Paul's. One's in chapter 1 and the other's in chapter 2. Oops, that's not... But he starts out with, um, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Um, it's a beautiful prayer, and it's instructional too. Paul Paul in the book of Ephesians likes to go from teaching to praying to teaching to praying. He's always kind of flip-flopping. And I love that about Paul's writings. He's just like everything could be a prayer, everything could be teaching, but he's also pouring his heart out to God for the, the Ephesians. And he just has this incredible pastor's heart for the people that he is over. Um, it's amazing. I just love Paul so much. I can't wait to meet him. <laughs> it, it's it's going to be so awesome in heaven because we're going to meet all these people and see all the other people that have gone on before that have influenced our lives and maybe been a part of our salvation experience in some way. And... Uh, it's just going to be so wonderful. But the idea that we're going to get to see, see the people, the heroes of the Bible, the authors that wrote the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you know, and Paul's passion for people and his love for people. It's just he was willing to sacrifice everything for the people he ministered to. He didn't, you know, flinch when persecution came or when when torture came or any of those other things. It's like he was such a good follower of Jesus because Jesus set that example and Paul followed it beautifully. In fact, Paul, I forget where it's at, says, follow me as I follow Christ. So so that's why I love Paul, um, to be that intimate with the Savior and to have that much care and devotion to the people that he taught and ministered to. And, you know, I can't imagine the thousands that came to the Lord through his ministry and through the churches that he established, and ultimately all the way down to us Gentiles, you know? 
he brought the message of the gospel to the Gentiles in a powerful way that brought many of them to salvation. So anyway, he starts out for this reason or this is why. It's a Paul's usual introduction to a new paragraph. Paul, Paul just loves to start new paragraphs that way. And it makes you want to look back to what that reason was. And he already taught in the first part of this chapter through verse 14, you know, things like who we are in Christ and the things that are available to us as believers in Christ. You know, and Paul's emphasis is always in Christ. He's just incredible when it comes to giving the credit where credit is due. You know, Paul didn't take any credit for himself. So he starts out, for this reason, um, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, Master Jesus, Paul always gave the ultimate and respect to the Lord when he was referring to the Lord in his writings. Um, and even down a little further, he goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Master Jesus Messiah. You know, that's to me, Paul just didn't want to leave any of those words out because, you know, they were so descriptive of who Jesus was. And, uh, you know, we uh, I'm skipping ahead there, but you know, I just love the way Paul addresses Christ in his letters and refers to him. Um, Paul says Paul had heard of their faith and their love for all the saints. You know, when you're a church that people hear about the love that you have within your body, you know, that's that's incredible. And And to me, that's my bragging rights about this body here. Um, I love telling people about this church when I'm talking to them about the Lord because there is such incredible love here between the people. We love each other and it shows, you know, because when we fellowship after every service, it's like, who's going to be the last one out of here today? <laughs> you know, it's because people want to stick around and talk and establish friendships here. You know, I've been in churches before, like as soon as the sermon is over, whew, Everyone's gone. They can't wait to get through the door and back out to their cars. And no one stuck around to fellowship. And to me, that's a sad statement on a church. It's like, where's, where's Christ in their church? Where is the love of Christ in their church? Because we're told in the Bible, that's how people will know we're, we're Christians, by our love, one for another. And, and Paul recognizes this love in the, their body there. And, and, you know, it's the number one evidence of faith. If you look at um, Galatians 5, I love this passage, 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the first and most important aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know, don't you love that list? You know, that's, that's how we're to be recognized as believers. These characteristics are a vital part of who we are. And that's the way we, we relate to each other through these beautiful characteristics. Our love, our joy, our peace, our patience, our long-suffering, 
our self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, all those things, you know, should be evident in us as believers and should be recognizable by others. You know, have you ever been in the grocery store and you've met a stranger or see a stranger and you just know because of the Spirit of God in you that the Spirit of God is also in that person? That's because of the fruit of the Spirit, I believe. You know, and I ran into that a lot at Walmart working there because, you know, someone would come up with a question and, and I'd be talking to them. And, uh, you know, before we knew it, we were talking about the Lord because we recognized Christ in each other. You know, and to me, that's a beautiful thing when you're out in the world and you run into another believer that you've never met before. But because of the spirit of God in them, you can relate. You have something to talk about. And to me, that's the um, the first and most important thing is our love for each other. I love this quote from the, the commentary. Faith finds its focus in Christ and expresses itself in love to others. Faith finds its focus in Christ and expresses itself through love for each other. Or our love to others. You know, that, that is so true. Our faith is in Christ. But our love for Christ is demonstrated by our love for other people. And, and our, our passion for those we serve with and work around and, and, you know, go to church with, you know, Sunday after Sunday. Or, or if you're like me, I'm here whenever the doors are open, except for women's fellowship. <laughs> I haven't got a foot in the door on that one yet. <laughs> and no desire to, by the way. <laughs> I'll let the women have their fellowship. <laughs> but anyway, it's that love. And it's ongoing love that's the evidence of genuine faith. Galatians 5, 6, if you're still in Galatians. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You know, it doesn't matter what's been done to us in the flesh, whether we're circumcised, uncircumcised, but it's how we love each other, how we relate to each other. And to me, that's the most one of the most wonderful things about being a Christian is just that love of God and the love of God's people for each other and our passion for the lost. You know, you can't leave that out. We have to have a passion for those who don't know Christ and are still lost out in the world. Um, people have, like, criticized me for bringing home homeless people. Well, I have a passion for people who are really struggling. You know, and, and if the Spirit of God is telling me, take that person home, I'm going to take them home. Maybe that's why I'm still single, because I don't have to worry about endangering anybody else in the family, you know, or kids or anything. But, you know, if the Spirit of God tells me to bring a homeless person home, I do it. I reach out to those who are in need because that's what we're supposed to do, and I just love it, you know. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So easy to criticize and so hard to love. 
especially if we feel offended. And that's why I think it's just a sin to be offended. <laughs> it's because you're showing your pride if you show offense. Right. And, and I, I believe firmly that we get the leadership we deserve, the worldly leadership we deserve. Our nation has slid so deeply into sin that is so offensive to God. He's just turned us over as a nation to godless leadership. And um, But one thing we got to keep in mind, even though he's turned us over to godless leadership, he is still in control. And he's the one controlling these people, which to me is so amazing. If you think of like the World Economic Forum thinks they're going to, oh, by 2030, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy and we'll control your thoughts and your actions and, and everything about you and, and we'll plant chips in your brains and do all this, this stuff. They think they're going to be in control. They're such fools. That's the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Godly wisdom says God is in control no matter what it looks like on the surface. God is always in control. And those guys just have the, the foolishness of the world. And they think they're going to be in control. And they're planning all of this out. And they're plotting all of it. And, you know, it's, most of it's been behind the scenes until recently. They've, they're even open with it now. You know, for decades it's been, you know, hidden behind the scenes. But their goal is to reduce the population of the world to 500 million by 2030. That means they have to eliminate about six and a half billion people, six, almost seven billion people to reach their goal. You know, can anyone say, well, that sounds like the end, doesn't it? Sounds like Jesus is getting ready to come back. But he's in control. He's going to let these fools do what they want and think what they want and try to control and think they're in power. But in the end, it's always going to prove that Jesus was always in control. And we'll get to that. I'm way ahead of myself. But anyway, I love Paul's heart in verse... Um, where are we at? I'm... Still in Galatians there. In verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To me, that's the ultimate of a pastor's heart. Um, you know, 
Paul had a real love for people. It's so obvious. And when he talks about remembering them in his prayers, it means making mention of them, whether that's by name or by church or by location. We, we can't pin that down. We don't know Paul's exact meaning there, but Paul took people before the Lord in his prayers all the time, constantly. You know, and, and we need to be that have that same heart as to just pray for our brothers and sisters constantly and so that their names are always before God, especially if there's a, a severe need like our brother Brian. You know, we need to be lifting him up constantly before God. What a tragedy. You know, because I don't know if you guys have been kept up date. You know, when you lose your legs because of an overdose. To me, that's such a tragedy. And he's repented and he's come back to the Lord. And But he's got a hard road to life to live now. It's, yeah, it's going to be very difficult for him. But if he's doing better. It's because of the prayers of God's people. And uh, we need to be lifting people like that up all the time. Keep their names before God all the time. Not that their names aren't before God. Because God is such a God of love. He knows every person and every need. Long before we even know our own needs, he knows what our needs will be. And he's there for us. He's such a loving God. But Paul, Paul had that kind of heart of God that he would mention these people um, before God. And it's just so important that we're always praying for others. You know, when we have our prayer times, I, I notice sometimes my prayer times tend to be too self-focused. And, you know, our prayers should not be self-focused. Our prayers should be others-focused first. Giving God the glory due him and then lifting up others. You know, just seeking God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and lifting up others before his throne. In verse 17, Paul actually begins the prayer finally. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Whew, what a verse to unpack. There, there's so much in there. Um, you know, knowing that the Father is the only one that can answer our prayers even Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, said, pray this, our Father. He didn't even say my Father. He said, our Father. So whenever we pray, we need to be conscious that we're one small cog in a big wheel. And, you know, we're part of the body and we need to come to God as with that in mind that, I'm a part of the body of Christ, and there's lots of other parts. So when we pray, we don't pray alone. The whole Lord's Prayer is in the plural. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Not give me my daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, you know, if you get tired of me <laughs> emphasizing the plurality of that prayer, but, you know, 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We're always to pray, mindful that we're part of an us. And that us is everyone around us and other believers in the world because there's only one body of Christ. It's a universal, unseen body, you know. And it's a glorious thing. And we need to love that body and love being a part of that body. Even though we may be just a small, insignificant part, there's no such thing as that in the kingdom of God. Every part is important. You know, try talking without your tongue. If you lose a tiny member of your body like your tongue, there goes your ability to speak or sing or convey information without having to write everything down. You know, or you've got a hangnail on your little toe and you just pulled your sock on and it got caught on that little hangnail. I mean, I'd... Common. <laughs> and you know how painful that is and how it affects your whole body. Such a tiny, insignificant thing. So when one part of the body hurts, our whole body has to relate to that one little part, no matter how insignificant. You know, I've never thought of a hangnail on my little toe being a significant thing until you catch it on a sock, you know. And hopefully we don't view people that way because there's no insignificant people. And I'm way off here. I'm sorry. I got to meddling and preaching in the wrong direction. Um, in this prayer, um, Paul addresses the Father as the glorious Father. That's a very Hebrew phrase. You see that a lot in the Old Testament in the, the Hebrew. Um, and it's the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus. Um, and it's interesting because Paul calls him the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. So he's kind of, that's all one term describing God. He's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious Father. So, you know, the respect that Paul understands exists within the Trinity itself. Even though Jesus is equal with God, you know, he doesn't consider himself to be that, you know, the head. Jesus is the head of the church, of course, but he's not the head of the Godhead. The Father is the head of the Godhead. And it's just a, a, a glorious thing, and Paul recognizes it here in this phrase here. And the, the basically when he's talking about the glorious Father, he's talking about God's essential being and what proceeds or emanates from that in God's mercy. You know, isn't that an amazing thought? You know, God's glory, we, we wonder, what, what does God's glory look like? Well, we're given a kind of a description of it in Ezekiel. When Ezekiel gets the vision of the glory of God, he gets it several different times. And it's got these four creatures underneath this sapphire or lapis lazuli platform with this throne and God on the throne. And, you know, when he sees that, rise up and leave the temple and then he sees it leave the city gate and you know god's basically turning his back on his people you know that's to me that's a terribly sad situation but you see a description of the glory of god and in 
Genesis and Exodus, we see the glory of God as the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke, you know. That's how God's glory appeared. To Isaiah, it was the cloud that filled the temple so full that no one could remain in the temple to minister, you know. There's so many descriptions of the glory of God, but it's his basic essence and what emanates from him, you know, and no matter how people have a vision of it, it's just, it's everywhere. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God, the psalmist wrote. You know, when I when I think of how evil and wicked the world is, it's pouring out there right now. When I think about how wicked and evil the world is, and you think of the it's still being full of the glory of God. That should really change your perspective. Sometimes it's easy to get so down when we think about how wicked this world has become, but when you realize this world is still full of the glory of God, his, his glory, his presence hasn't been withdrawn from this world yet. Someday it will be when he comes to take his people home and, and you know, he leaves the, the world in a mess during the tribulation period. You know, those people are going to experience a terrible time without the presence or glory of God anywhere in this earth. No wonder they'll hide in cracks in the mountains and caves and, you know, cry out for the, the, for the rocks to fall on them and crush them and kill them. It'll be that horrible. You know, we're going to miss that. Because of God's mercy. Romans 6, 4. I love this verse. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. It's because of the glory of the Father that we have new life. And that's what it's talking about here, the glorious Father, glory of the Father. Paul prays here for the, his readers to, fully, to be fully endowed with all that the Spirit has to offer, to be full of the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge. Um, God desires us to be wise. He does. In James um, 1 5, I should have been able to remember that because I've got it memorized or had it memorized at one time in my younger life. Um, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. You know, God doesn't look at us and say, Well, He's asking for wisdom again, but I don't think I'll give him any because he's being stupid down there. No, it's God's heart and passion for us to have godly wisdom so that we don't continue in those mistakes. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to have understanding. He's already made provision for us with wisdom and understanding. Every believer has th that as one of the gifts of the Spirit that you can take. Just like the armor of God, we have that. It's all provided. We just need to appropriate it by faith, and we have it as believers. You know, God wants us to have so much more than what we want God to give us sometimes, I think. 
And I'm not talking about materially. I'm talking about spiritually. Because God wants us to be so spiritually equipped that when we face a trial or tribulation, it doesn't take us by surprise. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't knock us off our feet. It gives us a hope that we can look to God. No matter what this trial is, God, you've got this. I'm in your hands. I belong to you. I'm your child. You've bought me at a great price. I'm yours. I'm ready, God. You know, and, you know, when people come into our lives that want to bring disruption or chaos, I mean, that's, there's plenty of those. All you have to do is go to work every day. <laughs> there's an overabundance of those. And some of those are even in the church. They just, I don't know why they, they can be so miserable and terrible and still want to come to church. But anyway, there's a few of those out there, too. And you just keep loving them. But, you know, they don't need to take us off our game. You know, because we have a greater life that's available to us as believers. And the, the purpose of having this wisdom is that so we may know God better. His desire is for us to know him and to know who he is. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 page here. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that an incredible passage? You know, if you're a spiritual being like we are as believers, we have the mind of Christ. We have that mind in us, and we can discern things spiritually. But the, the unspiritual man doesn't understand him. He can't discern him spiritually because he doesn't have the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of God given to us freely as that seal of our faith when we become a believer and our guarantee of better things to come, you know, that eternal hope. Um, you know, and we are to use the gifts that God gives us to discern the truth of the mysteries of God. I love the thought that there are mysteries of God. Most of them, or a lot of them, have been made known to us through Christ. But there's got to be so much more to God that we don't have any idea. You know, and, and when we get to heaven, that door of knowledge will be open to us. And the kind of knowledge here that he's talking about is that full, intimate knowledge acquired through personal acquaintance. That full, intimate knowledge acquired through personal acquaintance. Like I know, this is kind of, I know all the women in this church, but I don't know all the women in this church. I only know you by face. I know you by name. I know who you're married to. 
I know you come to church here. I know a few things about you, but I don't have that full intimate knowledge of you because that hasn't been given to me. And we're going to be able to know Christ and know the Father of God in that deep, full, intimate knowledge that we acquire through relationship. You know, I don't know most of the people in here that deeply because I haven't had that deep, intimate relationship where we share all kinds of things with each other. I have that with a few men in this church um, where we share the deepest things about our lives with each other so that we're accountable and can can share those things knowing they're going to be held in confidence and, and privacy and know that this information is only because we want them to take us before the throne of God and we trust them with that information because we desire their prayers. And, you know, that's the kind of information that God wants us to have about him, that full and deep knowledge that's acquired only through that personal acquaintance and, and that deep relationship that he wants to have with us. God desires relationship with us so much. It, it would even be hard to quantify how much he desires to have relationship with us, except for the fact that he died for us. And he demonstrated by his death how much he wants to have a personal relationship with each of us. A deep, intimate relationship that's gained only through time we spend with him and time we spend in the word together or and individually. Um, one of the things I got a chance to do is talk with someone at the worship praise in the park yesterday about how important it is to be in your word every day, to have develop that relationship with God through reading of his word, because that's his revelation of himself to us. You know, and other than through the Spirit, that's the only way we're going to get to know God. You know, and the Spirit will lead us into all truth, but we have to have the truth before us to be led into the truth, which means opening up your Bible and digging deep into it and studying it for yourself. So anyway, enough of that. He gets into... Uh, verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You know, I don't even know how you quantify that section of the passage. It just seems so beautiful. Um, he talks about the perception of our mind or the eyes of our heart. And that's just our inner awareness about ourselves and our relationship with God. He wants that opened up so that we can see all of his glories and all of the reality of God and who he is. And he's willing to do that for us. And, uh, you know, the heart is the seed of our thought and moral judgment and our reasoning and our feelings. And that's what he wants opened up to him, all of our heart. I mean, he can see all of our heart anyway. He knows that every deep, dark crevice that still remains in our heart. And he just wants access to all of it. And he wants to open our, the eyes of our heart so that we can also see into our heart and see what's there that he wants to change in us. And to me, that's 
the beauty of a relationship with God. He desires to change us for his glory and to make us such sweet, loving, good people for his glory. And the others may see his glory through us. I better get going. I'm going to run out of time. Um, you know, and the enlightenment provi is provided by the Holy Spirit who leads the believer to realize all that God has made available to us. You know, God's made so much available to us. And if we're not reading the, the Bible, we're not going to get to know everything that he has available to us. And that's why I love the book of Ephesians, because it, it outlines so many things that are available to us in Christ and our the kind of relationship that God wants to have for us. He mentions the hope of our calling. The hope of our calling is sort of like one of these things that's already taken place. We've been given the hope of eternal life. We've been given the beginning of eternal life in this life. But it's also an ongoing thing. Um, 1 Timothy 1.9 I should have marked these in my Bible. I had so many references. Oops. There, 1 Timothy 1.9. We also know that law is made up for the righteous, but for the, not for the righteous, but for law breakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. Religious for those who killed their fathers and mothers for murderers. And it goes on to all these other horrible things. Second uh, Timothy one nine. I'm sorry, I gotta flip over one more book. Second Timothy one. I was wondering where did that come from? Who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Isn't that an awesome thought? It's his calling and his grace and his mercy that was given to us before the beginning of time, before the world was even created. God knew us. And God knew exactly where he would place us in time and space and who we would be placed with, and what family we would be born into, and what church we'd be born again in, and, you know, everything about us, he knew. To me, that's mind-boggling, because I, he knows me better than I know me. And sometimes we think we know ourselves pretty well, but then God points out something to us in our life when we're in meditation and prayer and goes, oh, I'm sorry, God, I didn't see that, you know, and, and it's only because he loves us so much that he does that for us. And this is also our hope is an ongoing thing. It goes through all eternity, that hope that will be fulfilled one day in our redemption in Christ. We inherit all the wealth that God is, or that is God himself. Our inheritance is God. And you know what? We are his inheritance. Isn't that a beautiful thought? 
We're God's inheritance. He loves us so much that he considers us his inheritance. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, the people he cares about, people he ministers to and heals and, and patches up when we get broken. And You know, what a great God. You know, that's who he is. All that God is, we inherit, and he inherits us. That's not a fair trade. <laughs> God, that just shows the graciousness of God. I get him, and he's stuck with me. It just seems so unfair. But to him, it's not, because he loves us so much. And he wants us to realize the immeasurable power of God. Um, to me, he not only wants us to realize how much power there is in God, but he wants us to experience that power in our lives. He wants us to be fully equipped with all of the gifts of the Spirit, the power gifts, the, you know, the the power to minister to others. He wants us to be fully equipped with all of that so that we can minister to each other effectively as a body. If we can't do that, there's part of the body that's missing. There's part of what God wants for the body that's missing. And he doesn't want anything to be missing in our lives. I, I know Calvary Chapel kind, kind of tends to de-emphasize the power gifts of the spirit, you know, the healing and all those other things. But I think they're such a vital part of what the body of Christ is. And we really, really need those in our, in our lives and in our everyday walk with God. Um, the believer is intended to be a partaker in all of these things. And we're the destination or recipient of those power gifts. And we're the recipient of the benefit or beneficiary of God's power in us. And that power was demonstrated when he raised Christ from the dead. We have that same power living in us if we believe scripture. Because the Bible says the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. You know, that's to me, that's an incredible thought. That same power. You know, sometimes we get so down in the dumps about the silliest things, but then when we wake up and realize, duh, all the power of God is available to us if we would only appropriate it by faith. I just love that idea that power dwells in us. And, and Paul here uses four different synonyms for power, um, especially when he gets into the next few verses. The first one he uses is um, dynam dunamis or dynamis. Depends on how you pronounce it. It's a Greek word meaning power, and it means capability or potential. Um, they say dynamite was named after this term for Greek term for power because of its explosive potential. I mean, dynamite sitting by itself is pretty much inert unless you disturb it or, or cause it to be ignited. And then it has this incredible potential. But that potential is sitting in this stick. And you can look at the stick. You can pick the stick up. 
and you don't realize the potential of power that's in that stick until it goes off. And that's the kind of power God wants in our lives. You know, that potential for that kind of explosive power. Um, you know, it didn't mean explosive power then. I don't want to confuse anyone. The other kind of power he's talking about is an operational or working power. And I'm not going to get into all these Greek words, but it's the effective or operational power that we see in Scripture. You know, when we see, um, like, Peter and people are being lined up on the street so that his shadow might cast across them so that they would be healed. You know, that's that operational power that, you know, that should be in the church. The, another one is uh, just a name for strength, which means power exercised in resistance and control. Um, you think of the weightlifter who picks up a heavy weight. It's power exerted through that exercise, but also the control, because if they don't have good control, what are they going to do? They're going to drop it, you know, and they're going to be bumped from the competition. So it's exercised through that resistance and control. And the, the last word he uses for power here is might. And that's basically inherent vital power, power that's inherent in us. Um, or or you, one way you can think of it is muscular strength. And I was talking with someone this morning. I think it was one of you. But we were talking about how, like, men, maybe because... You know, you look at men, we have much more arm muscle than women. But if I hold a baby for five minutes, my arms are in pain and the muscles in my arms are starting to cramp. And it's like I want to hand the baby back. But a woman who looks like she has weak, you know, flabby arms can stand there and hold that baby for hours and hours and hours and not seem to be affected by it. So, you know, God created us differently and for different purposes. And, you know, he gave women that arm strength that to me is unbelievable. You know, how, how can I not hold like a 10-pound baby and my arms go limp in, you know, like 10 minutes and, and a woman can hold that baby all day? It's like, but that's the miracle of, of what we're talking about here, you know, that individual creative power that God's given to all of us. You know, and an ultimate example of this power is in verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. You know, God exerted that power and raised Christ from the dead, and that power dwells in us. Um, you know, and Paul doesn't make any bones about, you know, that's the kind of power that we need. That's the kind of power that the body of Christ should have. And and Christ, you know, had that power too. John um, 10, 18. Get through Luke here without going too far.
Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. He goes, talking about his own life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So that the resurrection power also dwelt in Christ. You know, we're told, you know, he was raised by the power of the Spirit. He was raised by God. He was raised by himself. You know, we're told all three. But that's because God is one. You know, we have a triune God in three persons, but of the same essence. And you can't divide the persons or the essence, really, because they, they he is one. And I believe the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh, encompasses all three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to me, it's just, ah, love it. Um, I'm going to get through this, though. Paul attributes, okay. And it's talking about God exalted Christ to the right hand of the Father. Um, that's the seed of authority and power, is at the right hand of the Father. In Psalm 110, one, and, and this is the passage Jesus asked the religious leaders about that they couldn't explain. But anyway, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, capital L, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you, your feet. And, and Jesus asked the religious leaders, you know, who was... Who is David talking about? <coughs> he knew. They knew he was talking about Yahweh. But who was the other Lord? It was Jesus. And that's confirmed in the New Testament, you know. It was Jesus that sits at the right hand of the Father and has all of that authority and power. Um And it talks about in the heavenly realms. You know, the the Greeks had all of these divisions for the heavens, the different levels of heaven that they'd figured out somehow. I don't know how they, you know, or what, or if it's, it's even real. But Paul, Paul talked about, you know, having this vision, and God took him up to the third heaven. You know, we know here that Jesus was taken to the highest heavens. In verse 21, um, far above you know, at the end of 20, taken into the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So far above, you know, whatever number of heavens there are, I think the Mormons have counted seven or, or whatever. Who knows how many heavens there are, how many levels of heaven there are. To me, it doesn't matter. I'm going there someday, and I'm going to see heaven, and I'm going to see Jesus, and I'm going to see everybody else. And that's all that matters. But the idea is that this indicates the superior authority that Jesus has, and that's what God and Paul wanted to emphasize in this passage is that Jesus has all superior authority over everything. Every ruler, you know, going back to the World Economic Forum, they're under God's thumb. 
whether they ever realize that in this life or not, who, who will ever know? But they're under God's thumb. He's controlling them. They're not coming up with these thoughts of controlling the world on their own. God is leading every bit of that. You know, and it's ultimately for his glory. And he's setting the stage for his return. You know, and he said, when you see these things happening, look up because your redemption draws near. Well, we've got all these bean counters at the top of the world thinking we're leading and directing and, you know, we're better than God. That the, that Noel Harari guy, you know, thinks we're going to be better than God because God could only create man, but man is going to be able to control other men's thoughts and actions. You know, that's his idea of a utopia. You know, and he's, he thinks, you know, their, their little elite group is going to be actually better than God. And this man's a Jewish person. You know, you would think he'd know better, but no. Their own foolish thinking, worldly wisdom, dumbest things on the planet, you know, when you compare it to God's wisdom and the way God, the things God has for us and the way he wants us to lead our lives. And it's in this age and in the age to come, Jesus is always eternal, will always be in control, has always been in control, and will never cease to be in control. I just love that. Because he's the one that died for me. You know, Satan may have thought he had a few minutes of control over Jesus when he got him crucified. But little did Satan know that Jesus' plan wasn't to stay there. It was to rise from the dead. And through his blood, we have redemption. And, you know, that's, oh, what a glorious thought. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is, this is awesome. Jesus has universal dominion. Everything is under his feet, even though it may not look like it. You know, that was one of, um, one of the questions that was asked when I was in Bible college. One of the students says, well, well, how could this passage be true when, when this is happening and this is happening and this is happening and these people are in control and it doesn't look like Jesus is in control? And the wise professor said, you know what? Do you ever think for a minute that God is manipulating these people unbeknownst to them for his own purposes? You know? That's how God is in control. It may not look like it on the surface, but he is in control. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. I just I love this passage. I'll have to read this one. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. In him you... Oh, that's enough right there. 9 and 10. My throat's getting scratchy. i got to quit. <clears throat> but in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells. And in us, all the fullness of Christ dwells. Doesn't that blow your mind? If all the fullness of 
the Godhead dwells in Jesus, and Jesus dwells in us, means all of the Godhead dwells in us. What do you say? I'm speechless. It's, it's like, that's so amazing that God <coughs> would choose to put himself in someone like me. You know, it's, I love that thought. God chose to put himself in us. He's head over everything concerning the church. All authority is given to Christ over the church. He's the head of the church. You know, the head from which all direction flows. The one we look to for everything pertaining to the body of Christ. Um, you know, we can overcome all obstacles because of the power and authority of Christ dwelling in us. You know, you look at the end of this this book, and, and chapter 6 outlines all of the, the spiritual armor we've been given. All we have to do is put it on, appropriate it by faith, and it's ours to protect us with and to give us that ability to advance the cause of Christ. You know, and the church is Christ's body. It functions because of its relationship with the head. If we didn't have a head, can you imagine what we'd be like? <laughs> we wouldn't be very functional because the head directs the body. And sometimes we forget. You know, sometimes we can get in those contentious business meetings and, and think we're running the body and don't you dare say that about them and don't you do this and we're not the head. We've never been the head. We never will be the head because the head is Christ and everything should flow from him. We derive our life and power from the head. Everything comes from the head for us. I love that last statement, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. In the Greek, this is a very hard phrase to translate, and I won't even go there tonight. But to me, <laughs> the best way to, to come from that is to just say the church is filled with Christ, by Christ, and all of the subsequent gifts that we have. We're filled by Christ, with Christ, you know. And if we're full of Christ, people are going to see that. Whether they see it as our body just loving on each other, coming together to do events like yesterday, um, you know, it was planned by primarily two people, but there was a lot of other hands and feet that were there supporting and, and helping and and, you know, setting up and tearing down and, and cooking and, and cleaning up after and you know this it takes a lot it takes a, a body to do things like that and that's to me that was the most beautiful thing about yesterday probably a tenth of the people there were people from this body helping and loving and supporting and and talking to people and reaching out to people there and and just loving on the other people that showed up 
You know, there was a family there that just moved here like a week ago, lives in Surrey. I don't know how many people from our church got to meet them, but they were so impressed by our church by the time the day was over, you know, just talking to them. Well, I met the, those people over there, and they go to your church. And I said, oh, yeah, they do. And, and, and they said, they loved on us so much. And I said, oh, yeah, we do. <laughs> you know, and that's the kind of church we have, and that's the kind of church I'm, I'm proud to brag about. You know, and I'm proud to invite people here <coughs> because I know no one's going to go back out through those doors unless they've been touched by at least one person, one family that's reached out to them as visitors and have loved on that person while they were here. I mean, it was beautiful this morning. We had a ton of visitors. It seemed like half of them stayed like for an hour to fellowship with us because they felt so loved and appreciated here. You know, and, and that's that's what a church should be. You know, and that's why I love this fellowship and I always want to be a part of this fellowship and to do what I can to make it even a better fellowship if I can. You know, but through the power and grace of God, we are what we are now. And, you know, I love that. And all the glory goes to God. We can't, we don't take the glory for what we are upon ourselves. It's because of what God has done in each of us and how he lives his life in us and through us. And, you know, it's, it's all glory to God, a glorious Father. Well, let me close in prayer. And then um, if anyone has a request after we get that turned off, we can spend a few minutes praying this. Um, we don't officially end till 7.30-ish, but, you know, if someone needs prayer, I'd be happy to stay behind and, and pray with anyone. So, Heavenly Father, we can't help but love you because of who you are and all that you've done in our lives, Lord. And we, we look at a book like Ephesians, and it's just mind-boggling how much you desire for us to have in you spiritually, Lord, and to take care of our every need spiritually, Lord. And Father, we just give you the glory. We just thank you so much for all of that, Lord. And Lord, help us to be obedient to you, Lord, so that we could experience even more of you and, and more of your love, that we would have that intimate knowledge of you through our time in, in the word together and in our time in the word individually and our time in prayer, Lord. Help us to know you more, Lord, and to, to glorify you in all that we do and all that we say. In Jesus' name, amen.